and thanks for joining me, Cleon and Ian Loon, for this RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures podcast. In this episode, we'll hear a talk from Alva Smith from the Thomas Davis Lectures Archives on the life and work of Irish writer Kate O'Brien. First broadcast in 1997, the centenary year of the Limerick-born writer's birth. Smith, who titled her lecture Kate O'Brien, Legend in Her Own Time, refers to themes and the characters in O'Brien's books. Their bid for freedom, self-expression, sexual relationships and determination not to be bound by convention. Alva Smith, at the time of this recording, was Director of the Women's Education Resource and Research Centre at University College Dublin, of which she was a founding director. Here's Alva Smith. The critic Raina Lewis reminds us that good gossip is not useful literary criticism. A pertinent observation in the case of Kate O'Brien, because there's plenty of good gossip surrounding her personal life. O'Brien's marriage to a Dutchman lasted less than a year. There's a rumour that one of her nephews might indeed have been her own son. And there is a delightful abundance of persuasive anecdote which suggests that Kate O'Brien enjoyed lesbian relationships. There's a temptation, then, to reduce O'Brien's careful, particular depictions of the complexities in her fictional character's sexuality and sexual relationships to the level of speculative gossip about O'Brien's own private life. This kind of reductive reading, or good gossip, is one of the most pervasive and potent ways of dismissing the work of women writers. In this talk... I want to suggest some useful ways that we can discuss the rich legacy of O'Brien's depiction of women in love, and particularly women in love with other women, which do not necessarily depend on gossip about the author's life, but instead focus on close readings of her work. Why do I choose to follow this theme in O'Brien's fiction? The short answer is that it fascinates me. Or maybe I should say more truthfully that I'm fascinated with myself, with the me that I find reflected in my reading of her writing. What do I see? And why do I see it? What happens when neither woman, the writer and the reader, denies her sex or her sexuality? Although each, in her own way and in her own time, recognises the taboos the necessary silences, so long and so tightly stitched into women's sexuality. What conversation is possible between us? If there is one, it surely has its tensions and its reticences. I'm nervous of imposing, even more of transposing, into an inappropriately direct contemporary idiom. By what right would I question, far less judge the writer before me, I have the strongest sense Kate O'Brien would, in any case, have been extremely irritated by attempts to define or confine her in any terms but her own. To quote the words of Reverend Mother to Anna Murphy in The Land of Spices, And be the judge of your own soul, but never for a second, I implore you, set up as the judge of another, commentator, annotator if you like, but never judge. O'Brien's Irish heroines struggle with their desires both to express themselves beyond the confines of the Catholic code of conformity and also their desires to remain connected with the people and place they love. O'Brien maps the contours in the internal typography of her characters whose desires lead them to be both apart from and a part of their tribe. Even in those novels which take place abroad, 
O'Brien focuses on the clash between her heroine's Irish middle-class values and the new social contexts in which they find themselves. Abroad, in O'Brien's novels, is invariably Spain, which she describes in her travelogue, Farewell Spain, as a femme fatale among countries. And then she declares, and with Spain, I am once and for all infatuated, a woman of passion. Her book was so profoundly anti-fascist that Franco banned it and its author from Spain. She was always the most subversive of writers and clearly feared no man or woman for that matter. O'Brien's novels sing in counterpoint of the conflicts produced by defiance and deviance from within a haven of domesticity and piety. Her heroines, aware of the cost of defiance, struggle with faith, family and their society, but they remain deeply attached even as they struggle to separate. They know they can never reclaim what they leave behind and their leaving is inevitable if they are to be true to their passion. But how, I ask myself, could a woman survive at all, never mind live, creatively, passionately, fully, in an environment which would stifle her so utterly? As Claire says to Rose in As Music and Splendour, talking about female roles in opera, they seem all to go either mad or bad, there's no other way out. All of Kate O'Brien's work is about finding, creating, inventing an other way out. And that is why it is so unique, challenging and useful. In The Land of Spices, we see Anna Murphy, the young artist in embryo, show a remarkable self-awareness in the pledge that she makes to herself to play for time, as she puts it, in her quest to find a way out. She wanted time, secrecy and no interference and no advice. She was both cunning and realistic. What you had to do was to play for time. You wanted none of the lives you saw about you and at present saw no way to any other. But the thing was to keep your head, to be still and watchful and walk into no traps. How many women, I ask myself, in this country over so many years and for so many different reasons have wanted time and no interference? How many of us have had to keep our heads, be still, even when we wanted and needed to shout and agitate and challenge? How many of us have failed to be watchful enough and walked into all the traps? The communities of women which Kate O'Brien first implies and then develops more boldly in her later novels are not perfect. This is no romanticised, rose-tinted paradise. But these communities do function to enable women to speak and to act, to live and to love, however fleetingly. They're separate spaces, sometimes chosen and carefully constructed, like those convents and the schools, sometimes externally imposed as punishment and lived with difficulty. I'm thinking here of Anna's incarceration in that lady, sometimes seemingly unconscious, almost accidental, the cafe in the novel Mary Lavelle. But each one of these spaces provides a measure of freedom from a narrowly bounded and misogynistic world. And above all, it provides greater self-determination, space, freedom from interference for women. 
Eroticism is a vital axis of O'Brien's narratives, and the same-sex relationships in her work are, I believe, profoundly erotic in that they are rooted in love, the love of women for women, variously understood and expressed, sometimes sexual, although more often not. It's perhaps fitting that in O'Brien's last novel, and I believe her greatest, as music and splendour, she gives us her most sustained meditations on love and on love between women. The novel follows the living and the lovings, if I can put it that way, of Rose and of Claire, who move from Ireland to pursue operatic careers in Paris and then Rome. Rose takes the young French singer René as her lover and then later falls in love with the aristocratic Antonio. Claire falls in love for once and for all with another singer, the Spanish woman Luisa Cariaga. O'Brien presents the lesbian love of Claire and Luisa as following the same patterns of pleasure and pain as the novel's heterosexual relationships. We read, She was distant now, in spirit as in space, from those loves on which she had been nourished at home. But Italy and music had educated her temperament as well as her talent, and she knew now, had known for a long time, in silent anxiety, that she must live with love. What an extraordinary phrase, living with love. And that, as we know, of all possible ways to live, is the most difficult and demanding, but also the most deeply satisfying of all. O'Brien insists that we view Claire as neither in greater violation of society's decrees, nor as more tormented than her other characters. Claire declares to a suitor named Thomas, Certainly, I am a sinner in the argument of my church, but so would I be if I were your lover. So Rose is a sinner, and she knows it, in reference to our education and our faith. We're so well instructed in that we can decide for ourselves. There's no vagueness in Catholic instruction. You can argue as you like against my loving Louisa but I can argue back all your unbridled sins. We all know the Christian rule, and every indulgence of the flesh which does not conform to it is wrong. All right, we're all sinners, you and I and Rose, Antonio and René and Mariana and all our friends. Claire's declaration has its counterpoint in the musings of Rose, who decides that no delight that her senses could bring her would ever overcome her certainty of wrongdoing when she made love. But neither would that certainty dissuade her from a necessity she found so sweet in herself and her lover. The kernel of us music and splendour is found in Claire's central question. When she asks, Is to love a mistake? It can be awkward. It can be silly, but is it really a mistake to love another person? The answer O'Brien provides is ambivalent. She says, the needs of the heart are at the mercy of conventions, fixed ideas, self-protection, willfulness, fear, and the thousand hard insistent claims and irrelevancies of general life. It's an ambivalent answer, but it is painfully perceptive, and I find it deeply moving. 
The most successful opera role sung by Claire expresses her most poignant desire. In Gluck's famous opera, Claire sings the part of Eurydice, and her lover Louisa, a mezzo-soprano in drag, sings Orfeo. O'Brien wrote, Still, Orpheus and Eurydice, their brilliantly made-up eyes swept for each the other's face, as if to insist that this disguise of myth in which they stood was their mutual reality, their one true dress, wherein they recognised each other and were free of that full recognition and could sing as if their very singing was a kind of Greek immortal light, not singing at all. In As Music and Splendour, O'Brien seems to make explicit the connection between the life the artist lives and the art they make. But then we must recognise that the lyrics translate not into meaning, but light, a Greek light, suggesting the ideal forms which shine behind the rough inaccuracies of loose words. Perhaps somewhere far above or beyond the treacherous surfaces of gossip, we can see O'Brien's own heart in this disguise of myth, in her continuing meditations on attachment and loss, her examination of the consequences of an artistic vision, and the loneliness of exile that self-awareness and wisdom brings when one is from a place that will only allow for lives lived by convention and tradition. Again we read in As Music and Splendour, What she did not know... 16 years old, and looking out in wretched alienation at the rain as it fell on a dull street of Paris. What she did not know then, or ever, that her desire to be back under a rain she knew, among stones and empty lanes, and looking at grey sea and a wet pier, and hearing her grandmother's sweet, good voice, calling her in out of the wet to her tea. She did not know then that in such agony she was meeting one of mankind's least manageable pains. But as we read, we are struck always and over again by the sweetness of Kate O'Brien's own understanding of these losses and conflicts and poignant dramas. For Kate O'Brien, women are the primary presence, in Adrienne Rich's phrase, and women's relationships to and with one another are what significantly shape her fiction. Those relationships are loving, sometimes sexual, passionate and always persuasive in ways that her heroine's heterosexual relationships are not. In The Land of Spices, Helen Archer's education, and I'm using that word in its full Latin sense of educare, to lead out, to draw out. Helen Archer's education of her pupil Anna Murphy is at the very centre of her life. In the anteroom, Agnes Mulqueen sacrifices herself in effect for love of her sister. In As Music and Splendour, Claire's existence is defined primarily, even exclusively, in terms of Rose and Louisa. That Lady, a novel greatly underestimated in my view, is a magnificent novel of female friendship, so rarely read as such. Anna and Bernadina are bound together in the most powerful, tender and intimate ways, each enabling the other to be more fully herself than she could otherwise have been. Together, these two women constitute a formidable threat to the ruling caste, for which, to, sh to be sure, they're punished. 
the women in Kate O'Brien's fiction encounter classic, almost emblematic and seemingly immovable obstacles in their struggle to realise themselves. Mary Lavelle rejecting both father and fiancé, Helen Archer confronting the bishop, Anna challenging the might of the state. Each one, in her way, refuses to have her life, her passion, her desire, whatever it may be, defined or confined by the institutions of patriarchal hetero-reality. Kate O'Brien's heroines come to knowledge, if not always to sweet and lasting joy, through experiences which are not defined or controlled by men. Without such independent knowledge, women cannot survive. Some women never make it. Molly Considine dies, literally, of dependency and silence, the price she pays for experiencing sexual pleasure, which she can't even name, is death through childbirth. Caroline is embittered, emotionally cut off. Senora Ariavaga, perfect wife and mother, lives and her husband recognises it fully, a kind of death in life. Pleasure cannot so much as enter her vocabulary, so well has conditioning done its work of repressing within her even desire itself. But Mary Lafell and Milagros, even the Misses, possibly Anna Murphy, certainly Helen Archer, Anna and Bernadina, Claire and Rose, all of these inhabit worlds in which men are incidental to women's survival. Not that independence is necessarily synonymous with happy endings. On the contrary, Kate O'Brien's heroines do not end up doing what women are supposed to end up happily doing. They do not indeed end up at all. For how do you end a story which has only just begun so tentatively to be told? Kate O'Brien, having effectively disabled the conventional heterosexual ending of marriage, male-female mating and bonding, then reaches the realisation that what might diversely replace it had yet to be invented or named, or perhaps was, quite simply, unrepresentable, unsayable. When Thomas tries to argue Claire away from her love for Louisa towards a requited love for himself, he protests that she should not have to bear Louisa's infidelity. He claims that Claire's love is not as potent as a man's love because no man would countenance such behaviour from the woman he loved. Claire's answer is indeed powerfully loving. If you were a man, she says, you couldn't endure that. No, Men, as you call them, don't seem to be able to endure things. I don't know what sex you suppose me to belong to, but I can endure Louisa's life. It's clear that Louisa feels far more strongly about Claire than about her male lover, Duante. Perhaps it's this confident knowledge that fuels Claire's angry reply to Duante when he calls Louisa a wanderer, incapable, as he says, of fidelity. And what, Claire asks, are we to do? She says, are we in charge of her? To write this, of this, like this, to refuse the solutions of the system is a radically subversive act which undermines the basis of the establishment, its values and practices. Kate O'Brien could not be allowed to continue unchecked, nor was she, for how many might follow. When I first read Kate O'Brien, as a very young woman, I did so with something of a frisson. I thought it was very daring to read a banned author. 
I cannot now read Kate O'Brien's work without being acutely aware of the significance and the consequences of the silencing of women through acts of censorship and sidelining of faint praise for less than the whole story are altogether as dangerous and pernicious a form of censorship as the banning of her novels under the Censorship Obscene Publications Act. It's so much less troublesome to erase the naming of women's sexuality in all its diversity than to try and understand it. So much less threatening to the given order to pretend that women do not, cannot, have an independent sexuality, that is, a sexuality which is neither male-defined nor male-dependent for its very existence. So much easier to behave as if it doesn't exist at all, for what does not exist cannot be written about. And is the reverse not also true? What is not read in the writing cannot be seen or said to exist. Now, when I read Kate O'Brien's work, I read with an admiration, among other things, of her exploration of what it means to live as a woman, in a woman's body, with a woman's desires, in a culture which allows women such meagre credit and credence, on condition that we remain voiceless, mindless, pleasureless, powerless and unswervingly male-focused. What I admire is Kate O'Brien's persistence in searching for ways of naming experiences which women had not yet dared to name, even to themselves, and which swerve close to, if not right into, the wild zone of a space beyond the rigid boundaries of convention. Mary Lavelle, in love with the married Juanito, and Agatha Conlon, in love with Mary, sharing this untamed zone in a tangle of longings. As we read, So though no word more of emotion was said between them, her voice and manner with Agatha had automatically become easier and more sisterly, not so much because Agatha fantastically and perversely loved her, but because, like her, she was fantastically and perversely in love. Agatha felt this unuttered sympathy and it made her reaction from her own confession less savage, easier to bear. The fantasticness, the perversity of ever being in love, indeed. O'Brien lays stress on how the union between Agatha and Mary is founded on this common ground. Mary watched the bay's door swing and swing again in the porch of San Geronimo and caught each time the gleam of candles. People going in incessantly to pray as Agatha did so often, as she did, seeking strength against the perversions of their hearts and escape from fantastic longings, seeking mercy, explanation and forgiveness because they are so vicious as to love one another. O Lord, have pity, Help us to have pity on each other, to make some sense, sometime, out of this tangle of our longings. What Kate O'Brien subtly and carefully, and I would say lovingly, explored, and why she is therefore of inestimable value to me as a forester, and why she had to be silenced, is women's coming to a sense of power that is strongly marked by eroticism in a particular culture granted and at a particular moment in time, as I too am located in time and in place as her reader. To read her work chronologically is to follow a path to adult womanhood, 
to knowledge and self-knowledge, to passion and desire, and for many of us, to independent lesbian sexuality. She provides a perspective, a vocabulary for exploring what it can mean to be a woman and what one can become if we embrace freedom with all the risks and uncertainties it brings. If we can refuse to take existence at face value, but insist on exploring it on our own terms, in the wholeness of ourselves as thinking, acting, feeling, pleasuring and ultimately joyous beings. Not the only perspective indeed, but significant in a landscape where there are few markers pointing the way for us in this tangle of our longings to sing my own heart to my own heart. O'Brien's wonderful, magnificent and enduring harmonies can point our song against the prevailing chant. Long may we read her and long may we sing that wonderful song. That was Alva Smith from the 1997 RTE Radio 1 Thomas Davids Lecture Series dedicated to the life and work of Irish writer Kate O'Brien and first broadcast in the centenary year of O'Brien's birth. Look out for more talks from this series and subscribe to the Davis Now Lectures podcast for talks on a host of subjects where you get your podcasts. The Davis Now Lectures website is rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Davis Now Lectures. From me, producer Cleanna Nianloon, thank you for listening.